follow along. We're in Daniel chapter 7. And uh, in the middle of the chapter, as we go through Daniel, and let me remind you that this is uh, apocalyptic literature with lots of images and sort of weird things. Uh, And you'll have to listen carefully uh, to get it. Daniel chapter 7, starting at verse 16. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. For as for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. And he shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment. And his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we have come to your word and we confess that in our ignorance we struggle to understand it. Lord, I believe there are people here this morning who need to hear the message of this word. So we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you show us your sovereignty and teach us our great need for faith in your Son. Do this in and for each of us this morning. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Now, I want you to imagine me as a prophet. Not that hard to imagine. Just pretend. Imagine me as a prophet. And I had a dream in the night and visions passed through my head. A great bull, sleek and fat, vain and self-satisfied, filled the landscape. And there arose a ravenous bear, which struck down the bull. And those who loved the bull wept bitterly. However, after a time, the bull asserted itself once again 
and once more filled the landscape. And I was told the exact time of the bull's return, but I am forbidden to make it known. Now, obviously, those of you that know anything about the stock market know that the bull represents an increasing stock market and good economic times, whereas the bear represents a declining stock market and more difficult economic times. And most of us would love to know the future, especially the economic future. It would be nice if, in fact, I could tell you the exact date of the bull market's return. But I am not a prophet, and this is all made up. In this message, however, we're going to consider the visions of one who was indeed a prophet of God, Daniel. And chapter 7 began in verse 1. If you remember, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. We're still in the beginning of the second half of the book, the last six chapters. The second half is very different uh, of the book, is very different from the first half of the book. In the first six chapters, Daniel interpreted the dreams of others, telling them what God was doing in their lives. But in this half, have his own frightening, overwhelming dreams and encounters with God. And we're in a section that will not only feel different, but will also have a different message. And we have to ask the question, is there a way to understand these biblical passages, a way that through sane and sensible interpretation uncovers the message of these passages for believers in all times and places? And if we understand the central purpose of these passages and focus our attention on what's clear and straightforward rather than what's complicated and obscure, then we'll find blessing and encouragement in the apocalyptic portions of the Bible. What's more, Christians who disagree on the end times can certainly agree on these central truths, whether the Lord returns sooner or later. And to understand any kind of writing, we need to understand its purpose. So I want to go back and review a little bit from last week about understanding apocalyptic passages. The word apocalyptic or apocalypse simply means revelation. And that's why the book of Revelation is also known as the Apocalypse of St. John. As I said last week, we instinctively know when a sentence doesn't make sense. I gave you the example of a sentence that begins, the stars will fall from heaven, the sun will cease its shining, and the moon will drip blood, and the rest of the country will be partly cloudy with scattered showers. It's an obvious mismatch. First part of the sentence is apocalyptic. The second part is a weather report. And the problem with a lot of end time scenarios and some of these end times books is they take apocalyptic literature and try to make it sound like a weather report. And it just doesn't work. And so, first of all, let's define again what apocalyptic literature is. The definition is there uh, in your outline. Biblical apocalyptic is a revelation of the ending of this present age, which is an age characterized by conflict, and its replacement by the final age of peace. It shows us ahead of time the end of the kingdoms of this world and their replacement by the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Revelation is unfolded in complex and mysterious imagery and has the purpose of comforting and exhorting the faithful. So when you read this, remember the purpose is to comfort and exhort and encourage. It's not to scare you. 
And therefore, apocalyptic literature proclaims a theology of hope to those whom particularly the world has marginalized. It reminds us that God is on his throne and he will ultimately triumph. And those who read it correctly and take the time to understand what Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation are all about are the ones who see heaven open and know how the story ends and the ones who can look forward with unshakable hope to the last day when God acts to bring in the final triumph of the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And that's the point of apocalyptic literature. Simply that, yes, it's bad, it's hard, it's difficult, but this is not all there is. The best is yet to come. And when it comes, you'll see that Jesus is victorious and followers of Jesus will win with him. And with the resounding words of Handel's Messiah taken from Job 19, uh, we will be able to proclaim, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he shall stand upon the earth. So with that in mind, let's continue with our study of Daniel. Since we're not following this in chapter order, but chronologically, we're now in the middle of chapter 7. And we're dealing with the interpretation of this strange dream that Daniel had that we first read about last week. (coughs) So let's turn there to Daniel 7. And we'll look at first the meaning of the beasts. The meaning of the beast. Now, last week we read about this vision. I want to go back and look at the description of the fourth beast because that's really what we're going to focus on. And I was looking earlier at the, I think it's pretty much over here, has uh, images, visual images of the beasts and get some idea of what they look like. But if we go back in the chapter to verses 7 and 8, we can see when this was first described. Daniel writes there, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now, if you remember, in this vision, Daniel sees monsters. (coughs) These aren't just large and terrifying dinosaurs like a T-Rex in Jurassic Park, but they're evil. They're agents of chaos and destruction. They're utterly opposed to God. And uh, the world had never seen anything like these. Many scholars think this beast represents Rome, um, if it does, it certainly emphasizes how ruthless Rome was. So what happens next? Starting with verse 16, he writes, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever." And ever. The four great beasts, each more frightening than the preceding one, seem to indicate the number of kingdoms or kings represented in the vision. Most interpreters see these representing the same kingdoms as the image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2. And if that's true, then most likely they're Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. However, ancient Greece is no more, ancient Rome is no more. 
And rather, what we see here is the pattern of successive evil kingdoms simply telling us what it's going to be like, that this is all part of God's plan, and therefore we should prepare accordingly. And the text seems to support that because when the angelic interpreter explains to Daniel what the dream means, he doesn't clarify the identity of the kingdoms, which seems to suggest that a proper understanding of the vision doesn't rest on resolving the question of who the beasts represent. In fact, the attempt to identify the various beasts actually directs us away from the proper understanding of the vision, which is not on who do the beasts represent, and it's not on when will these things happen, but on what the vision of the beasts is trying to teach us. It's not about writing history in advance as much as it's making a theological statement about the conflict between the nature of evil and the victory of God. And the focus of all apocalyptic literature is the constant continuation of trials and conflicts and persecution until the return of the king. Tolkien didn't name that book wrongly. And so to identify the beasts as four past empires is exactly the opposite of the message of apocalyptic literature. For apocalyptic literature, nothing less than the coming of the new age can change the world. Until the coming of this new age, darkness will not lift significantly. And therefore, with such a view, the message of Daniel 7 is that life in this present age will always be this way until the end of the age. Now, if you've studied any end times view, uh, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, you'll quickly figure out I'm amillennial. Things are going to get better in the church and worse in the world at the same time. Of course, that's better the way God defines it, not how we define it, which is very different. The uh, I am not premillennial, which just thinks everything's going to get worse, and I'm not postmillennial, which thinks everything gets better. I'm amillennial, which thinks both. Some things will get better, some things will get worse. And uh, so you'll hear that coming out as we talk about these types of passages. But we've looked at this passage that has this really negative, harsh, cruel images in it. And I was struck uh, reading these to think that the superpowers of our own age still customarily represent themselves by predatory animals. The Russian bear, the Chinese dragon, and the American eagle. And the beasts of this present world may change their shape as times pass, but their lust for power and violence continues. If you follow the past empire's theory, then Nebuchadnezzar turns into Darius, who becomes Alexander the Great, who becomes Antiochus Epiphanes, who turns into Caesar. However, these fierce rulers are followed in turn by Nero and Domitian, the great persecutors of the early church. And even in our last century, we have seen manifestations of the beast in the persons of Hitler and Stalin, And Mao, and in the gas chambers of Bergen-Belsen, and Auschwitz, and Dachau. 
More recently, we've seen the manifestations of the beast in Saddam Hussein and Kim Jong-il and in the killing fields of Cambodia and Kosovo and Rwanda. If you come to Sunday school next week, you're going to learn something about Rwanda as Catherine Larson is going to teach us about that and talk about her new book about that. And you really should come. Next Sunday is not the morning to sleep in or read the paper or anything else. Even you guys that go on the men's retreat, there are no excuses. I expect to see you all uh, coming to Sunday school next Sunday. So uh, just suck it up and be there. So not that I'm opinionated about that or anything. But if you look around the world, you see the persecution of the saints around the world today has increased. In fact, there's been more martyrs in the last hundred years than all the rest of church history combined. We see that in the torment of Christians in the Sudan and in China today. (coughs) And don't think for a minute that beasts aren't at work in our own country. It's really easy to look out there and see how bad things are and think it's not bad here. It's bad here. I just heard this week about a predicament, and I have to be careful how I say this, a predicament that a large, well-known church in Seattle is facing. The adult film industry, a stupid name if there ever was one, is hosting an amateur film festival in that city near that church. And in order to enter a film in said film festival, the church must appear in it. And that church has had to hire full-time, 24-7 security to keep these people from breaking into church and making films, these films, in their church. And furthermore, as if things could get worse, the film fester is requiring that the pastor of this church must appear in these films. This pastor, very well known, is having the videos uh, of his sermons and conference talks from the church website downloaded so they they can be cut and spliced and put into hundreds of these profane films. How would you like to be that guy? This is a full-blown attack on that guy because he preaches the gospel in a city where the gospel is not welcome. And he has to meet with his elders and say, how are we going to explain to uh, the Christian world why my picture is showing up in all these bad films? And they haven't quite figured out what they're going to do. And they know they're somebody somewhere is going to attack them. That's evil. And that's of Satan. And beasts are at work all around us. This continual presence of beasts in our world shouldn't surprise us because every human manifestation of evil is simply a reflection of the work of the great dragon, Satan himself. In Revelation 13, we see a beast rising from the sea. Listen to this description from the Bible. I think it's there in your outline, but just listen to it from Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. 
with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Remember those words coming out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth? Very similar to that. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has a hear, an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is the call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So here is the persecuting power of the Antichrist, a beast that combines aspects of Daniel's creatures into one, a lion, bear, leopard with ten horns. And wherever we are in time and wherever we are in place, frightening monsters array themselves against the Lord and against his anointed one, the Messiah Jesus. And so as the Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And all that is true. But it is essential to notice the focus of the chapter as a whole is not on the monsters themselves. And so we see in verses 18 to the end, the end of the beasts. The end of the beasts. After all, the purpose of the passage is not to give us nightmares, but to calm our nightmares. And the focus of Daniel 7 is on the coming day of judgment when these monsters will receive justice and God wins the final victory. Which is precisely how the interpreting angel sums up the message of the chapter in verse 18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. As if you didn't get the point of the first forever. And the angel is not fixated on the identity of the beast. Rather, the central point is the certainty of the final victory of the saints, a triumph which lasts forever. Now, in verses 19 to 22, Daniel sort of presses the angel with a question about the identity of the fourth beast. Doesn't seem he's satisfied yet. So he says, Then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying. 
with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And yet the angel's explanation adds very little to what Daniel already knows. Nor are there sufficient details given for us to identify this beast. Verses 23 to 27. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast... There shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. So we know it's about an earthly kingdom. And he said, as for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise. So we know the horns are kings. And another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. Being another, it's another greater king. We don't know who, it doesn't say. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. Verse 27, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey them. This description of the time of trial and judgment is vague enough to leave the identity of the beast uncertain. And I think the reason for this vagueness on the part of the angel lies in the fact that his primary interest is not in the boastful horn of the beast. In fact, the angel's answer sidesteps Daniel's question in order to reemphasize his earlier point in verse 22 about the judgment to come and the triumph of the saints. It's as if the angel is saying, Daniel... You're missing the point. Yes, the horn of the beast will assault God's people, and it will be a trying time for the saints. But look beyond the horn. The point of the vision is that the time when the beast suppressed the saints is limited. That time is limited by God. And behind it lies lies the scene of a heavenly court where the beast will be destroyed. Then sovereignty and power will be handed over to the saints of the Most High God, and his kingdom will never end. And yet you get the impression from the very last verse, verse 28, that Daniel is still scared. He still doesn't quite get the angel's message, which neatly sets us up for the rest of the book of Daniel. So at the end of the chapter, Daniel remains troubled by the vision. And though it ends well from the perspective of the godly, it paints a picture of continued and difficult oppression. And the divine victory doesn't come easily, but through a cosmic struggle. Daniel 7 is a vision in two parts. The first part reveals the world is under the sway of evil. And the second part shows us that God is in control and will ultimately judge the rebels. Daniel's vision, both here and in chapter 8, 
culminates at the end of history when God will come and rid the world of evil and set up his own eternal kingdom. So with all that said, where does it leave us? After all, we still live in this present evil age. So I think there's two applications for us. There may be more, but there are at least these two. And these are not applications about what we should do. And these are uh, not applications of uh, action. These are applications about what we should know, about what we should believe. The first application concerns the nature of evil. The nature of evil. Daniel 7 paints a horrifying picture of evil. The hybrid beasts represent powerful destructive forces that intend to harm others. And the iron teeth and the bronze claws of the beast intend to rip into its prey. And the godly know that they are the beast's intended meal. We talked in the high school Sunday school class this morning. Many Christians around the world today immediately understand this image. Christians in many countries know and experience the harsh rule of regimes that hate Christianity and will go to great lengths to squash it. Today, this day, this morning, Christians in China, Indonesia, India, throughout the Middle East, Sudan, Ethiopia, even on our borders in Mexico, live in daily fear of losing both their freedom and their lives. These brothers and sisters in Christ have no trouble recognizing the beast-like nature of the world in which they live. Now, we don't have to face those kinds of physical dangers. What does that say about us? I think... Obviously, it says that our faith, our Christianity, is so much weaker than theirs. Because we can be won over by such simple things as money, sex, power, and fame. Why do the beasts need to go after our bodies when we so readily hand them our souls? Materialism, secularism, nationalism, racism, and all the other isms are so much more benign ways of getting us to bow the knee to Baal. Those are pretty harsh words. Sadly, I think they're true. The Bible, after all, after all teaches that all men, all women are sinners. We're going to have the Lord's Supper next Sunday. Somebody's going to get up here and say, uh, you're a sinner. You're either a repentant one or an unrepentant one, but the sinner label still applies. And I think the picture of evil of these beasts in Daniel 7 is consistent with this lesson, a lesson we learn throughout the Bible that every man and every woman at heart is a self-seeking rebel against God and that we would crawl over the bodies of our fellow human beings in order to gain some small advantage for ourselves. 
And in the classic statement of the scope and depth of sin in the human heart, the Apostle Paul collects a series of Old Testament quotations and strings them together in a universal condemnation of humanity in Romans 3. And I'm always careful when I get to this passage because the last time I preached on this passage, people got up and walked out. So wait till I'm done, then you can walk out. Revelation 3, verses 10 to 18. This passage applies to every living human being. And it says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No one escapes this judgment, not the ruthless dictator, nor the benevolent president, the hardworking mayor, our law-abiding neighbor, our spouses, our children, and especially not ourselves. Everyone is a sinner swift to shed blood. The beast is in the heart of every one of us. But the beasts are more than individual sinners. The beasts represent corporate rebellion as well. Simply because, if for no other reason, that corporate rebellion is a product that flows from individual sin, not vice versa. The beasts represent kingdoms, not just one sinner, but an organized pack of sinners. And the point is that the power of the beast is as true today as it was in the time of Daniel when God's people were oppressed by Babylon or at the time of Jesus when God's people were oppressed by Rome. But thank God the story doesn't end there. But rather it ends with our second application, which is the victory of God. The victory of God. The ultimate spiritual battle behind our earthly struggles was anticipated in the Old Testament, but the New Testament rips away the curtain so we can see the heart of the battle. The battle will continue until the final day. But Daniel didn't just paint a picture of horrifying and seemingly invulnerable evil. We cannot leave Daniel 7 without highlighting the picture of hope in the midst of the chaos. One like a son of man rides a cloud to the rescue of those oppressed by beastly kingdoms. And the precise identity of this figure had to wait until the fuller revelation of the New Testament. We see Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. Jesus himself is the one who rides the cloud chariot into the final battle. Jesus is the divine warrior who will defeat the beast and the forces of evil at the end of time. And how can we be sure? What makes us think that Jesus will conquer the great dragon, the great serpent, Satan, the deceiver? Because we have a guarantee. And that guarantee is the cross. Jesus defeated Satan 
on the cross. That's the testimony of the Apostle Paul who wrote concerning the removal of our sin. Colossians 2. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In the New Living Translation that reads, in this way he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. One cannot help but see that the vision of Daniel 7 teaches God's people that although it looks like the world is on the power, under the power of human evil, running rampant, and is not under God's control, nothing could be further from the truth. God is in control, and there's no question. There is no question as to who's going to win this struggle. Mark 13. Jesus is speaking. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So stay faithful. So stay faithful. I love this story by Max Lucado. I think it applies to our passage uh, today, and I want to end with it. It comes from one of his older books called Then the Angels Were Silent. He writes, The decision had been made, the troops had been deployed, and the battleships were on their way. Nearly three million soldiers were preparing to slam against Hitler's Atlantic Wall in France. D-Day was set in motion. Responsibility for the invasion fell squarely on the four-starred shoulders of General Dwight D. Eisenhower. The general spent the night before the attack with the men of the 101st Airborne Division. They called themselves the Screaming Eagles. And as his men prepared their planes and checked their equipment, Ike went from soldier to soldier offering words of encouragement. Many of the flyers were young enough to be his sons, and he treated them as if they were. A correspondent wrote that as Eisenhower watched the C-47s take off and disappear into the darkness, the 101st Airborne Division was dropped behind enemy lines. His hands were sunk deeply into his pockets, and his eyes were full of tears. The general returned to his quarters and sat down at his desk. He took a pen and paper and wrote a message, a message which would be delivered to the White House in the event of a defeat. It was as brief as it was courageous. Quote, Our landings have failed. The troops, the air, and the Navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches itself to the attempt, it was mine alone. It could be argued that the greatest act of courage on that day, and there were hundreds of great acts of courage on that day, was not in the cockpit or in a foxhole or on a beach, but at a desk where the one at the top took responsibility for all the ones below. When the one in charge took the blame, even before the blame needed to be taken, he modeled a quality seldom seen in our society of lawsuits and dismissals. Most of us are willing to take credit for the good we do. Some are willing to take the rap for the bad we do. 
Few will assume responsibility for the mistakes of others, and fewer still will shoulder the blame for the mistakes of others yet uncommitted. Eisenhower did, and as a result, he became a hero. And Jesus did, and as a result, he became our Savior. Before the war began, he forgave. Before a mistake could be made, forgiveness was offered. Before blame could be given, grace was provided. The one at the top took responsibility for the ones at the bottom. The phrase, son of man, conjured up the same images for the Jews of Christ's day that the title general creates for you and me. It was a statement of authority and power. Consider all the titles Jesus could have used to define himself on earth. King of kings, the great I am, the Alpha and Omega, the Lord of all, high and holy. All of these and a dozen others would have been appropriate, but Jesus didn't use them. Instead, he called himself the Son of Man. That title appears 82 times in the New Testament, 81 of which are in the Gospels, 80 of which are directly from the lips of Jesus. And to understand Jesus, we need to understand what this title means. If Jesus thought it was important enough to use it 80 times, it's certainly important enough for us to pay a little attention to it. Few would argue that the title is rooted in Daniel 7, a text which is one frame of a uh, cinematographic uh, masterpiece. The seer is afforded a seat in a theater that features a peak at the powers of the earth. The empires are portrayed as beasts, rabid and hungry and vicious. But as the scenes unfold, the empires fade. One by one, the world powers tumble. And at the end, the conquering God, the Ancient of Days, receives into his presence the Son of Man. To him is entrusted authority, glory, and sovereign power. Picture him blazing white atop a gallant steed, a sword in his hand. And to the Jew, the Son of Man was a symbol of triumph. The conqueror, the equalizer, the score settler, the intimidator, the starship enterprise. The right arm of the high and holy one. The king who roared down from heaven in a fiery chariot of vengeance and anger towards those who have oppressed God's holy people. The Son of Man was the four-star general who called out his army to invade and led his troops to victory. And for that reason, when Jesus spoke of the Son of Man in terms of power, the people cheered. When he spoke of a new world where the Son of Man would sit on the glorious throne, the people understood. When he spoke of the Son of Man who had come on the clouds of heaven with power and authority, the people could envision the scene. When he spoke of the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, everyone can imagine the picture. But when he said the Son of Man would suffer, the people got quiet. This didn't fit the image. It's not what they expected. 
Put yourself in their place. You've been oppressed by the Roman government for years. Since your youth, you've been taught that the Son of Man would deliver you. Now he's here. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. He proves he's the Son of Man. He can raise the dead and still the storm. And the crowds are growing and you're excited. Finally, the children of Abraham would be set free. But what's this he's saying? Mark 9, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they do not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. You can imagine their thoughts. Wait a minute. That's an impossible, incredible, intolerable contradiction of terms. The son of man being betrayed, the conqueror killed, the ambassador of the ancient of days mocked, spit upon. But such is the irony of Jesus wearing the title, the son of man. And it's also the irony of the cross. Calvary is a hybrid of God's lofty status and his deep devotion. And the thunderclap which echoed when God's wrath collided with his love. The marriage of heaven's kingship and heaven's compassion. Jesus wears a sovereign crown but bears a father's heart. He is a general who takes responsibility for his soldiers' failures. But Jesus didn't just write a note. He paid the price. He didn't just assume the blame. He seized the sin. He became the ransom. He is the general who dies in the place of the private. He is the king who suffers for the peasant. He is the master who sacrifices himself for the servant. He is the son of man who, as Mark 10 says, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he did that for you. And if you believe that, and if you receive him as your Lord and Savior, then as Jesus said, Mark 14, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And you just have to decide if you're going to see that or not.